All right, continuing tonight in the first letter of John, looking specifically at chapter 2 and verse 1, Advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now John says a mouthful in a pretty small space throughout the entirety of 1 John chapter 1. We see the Apostle contending for the faith when John writes proclaiming the message of the Gospel. A message that had been manifested in Christ whom he and the rest of the apostles saw and heard and touched with their own eyes and ears and hands. This message that came from the beginning it has come down with them across time and even down to us today 2,000 years later in order that those that hear it, whom God effectually calls as we were looking at four of the apostles this morning, that those that hear it may have fellowship with Him, and by having fellowship with Him, they also have fellowship with all whom He has fellowship with. It's a crazy idea, but the reality is, is that to a degree that we do not understand today, but one day will, you and I currently have fellowship with the Apostle John. That's a wild thought. He gets it. We don't. One day we'll see not through a mirror darkly, but we'll see Christ face to face and we'll understand then. We'll know as we've been fully known, just as even John who wrote this knows that firsthand now. Figured balance of the relationship. I'll be getting a better end of the stick by being in fellowship with John than he'll get with being in fellowship with me. But one thing is for sure, we will both have no fellowship that is greater than that we have with Christ. So this is what John's doing, man. He's contending. He knows that the day of the apostles is passing. And he's the last one. And what he wants men to understand before Gnosticism tries to creep in is that this is the message that was manifest in the flesh, has now been given to them, and provides a relationship in fellowship with Christ in the person of the Gospel. A fellowship that is not the legalism of sinless perfection, lest we claim so and be liars. Or is is it the lasciviousness of saying God has no concern over our sin and somehow we've just been positionally saved lest we make Him out to be a liar. But instead, it's based on a relationship of abiding together in Christ. To be somewhere with the idea of being at rest, abiding that is after the manner of Christ abiding in the Father. Which, I love what Alan said in his prayer earlier. It's not in the notes, obviously, but I'll speak to it now since we're talking about abiding and being at rest. There is a very real godly tension in the text that exists between abiding in Christ, which is being at rest, And the fact that everything that Jesus did while He was here on earth is given credit in Scripture to being the zeal of the Lord in Him that caused it. Now that's that would be an interesting that'd be an interesting camp study even. Rest and zeal. This fellowship is based on relationship of abiding in Christ. An abiding that is patterned after the same manner of Christ abiding in the Father that begins with the gift of love for Christ in us that in turn yields the manifestation of obedience to His commands 
that in turn proves and testifies to all he to all that sees us that we are his disciples in order that Christ's joy may be full in us. And so that's easy to say. And when you look at John chapter 15, when the Apostle John is writing in his first letter about the fellowship that he enjoys with Christ and why he's writing about this message to you that you may enjoy it as well. And then he says all these things about, you know, if you, if, 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 if you claim to know Him while walking in darkness, and then the truth is not in you. But if you think you're sinlessly perfect, the, 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 the truth is not in you. And if you think that He is indifferent to your sin, then you would make Him out to be a liar. He says all these things. And we go back to chapter 15 of the Gospel of John. And he says, look, here's how it works. Yes, it, it, it's maybe not as neat as the high theologians would like it to be, but that's because it's not based on a formula. It's based on an organic relationship between sentient beings. It's based on the relationship that He has with His Father. Which brings us to a little bit of an issue because the issue of abiding in Christ, the way that Christ abides in the Father for mankind is this, is Christ has always perfectly loved the Father. And we have not. And Christ has always perfectly been obedient to the Father. And we have not, and in this life, will not. And so, in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, we see the joy that is manifested out of His grace to us in giving to us what we could never have of our own accord. And the, the, the abiding that Christ has in the Father is a just abiding. He has always loved Him. He has always been obedient. The abiding that we have in Christ is a justified abiding where Christ has made it so on our behalf. And so here in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, He says, My little children, remember what He just said in verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm writing this so that you won't sin. It's not that in the Gospel somehow Jesus has become indifferent to your sin because it's been paid for so it no longer really matters. No, that's not the case at all. I'm saying this so that you won't sin. But if you do, and when you do, lest you claim you don't and be a liar, then I want you to understand the joy of the advocacy of Jesus Christ. We have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. Now this word advocate is a powerful word because it is used very selectively in a very narrow sense only in a handful of places in all of Scripture. In the Greek, it is the noun form of the verb that means comfort, encourage, or exhort. So you have this verb that says, okay, this is going to be comforting. Comfort you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to exhort so this is the noun. So it is the comforter, the encourager, the exhorter. And that would just be the, the simple morphology of the word. But the reality is, is that it carried more weight than that in the context of first century Greek. And the reason it did was because it was very specifically a legal term. 
So when you look at our court system today, there's all sorts of terms that have a very specific meaning. They seem a little outside of the box, but the way they're applied within the legal system gives them a whole lot of weight that sits behind them. So this doesn't simply mean comforter, encourager, exhorter, the way I might come along and comfort my wife or encourage my wife or exhort my wife or encourage one of your kids or exhort one of your kids. Instead, this is a legal term that means an official representative speaking on someone else's behalf unto their purpose or their cause. This is more of a situation of counsel, if you would. It's only used five times in the New Testament. It's used one. It's always used by John. He's the only one that uses it. It's used one time here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, speaking about Christ. The other five times, I say it's only used by John. It's only recorded by John. Because it comes out of Christ's mouth. All of the rest of the times that it is spoken of, recorded in the Gospel of John five times, it is translated as helper, referring to the Holy Spirit. And it's all in the section of narrative that we looked at this morning about Jesus telling them what the Holy Spirit is coming to do. He speaks of the Holy Spirit as being their helper in John 14, 16, in 14, 26, and in 16, verse 7. But I think for our purposes tonight, we'll get an idea of what it means to be the advocate, to be the helper of the best out of John chapter 15, in verses 26 through 27. And here in John chapter 15, in verse 26, Jesus says, I'm in chapter 16, that's not where I need to be. He says in chapter 15, verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with Me from the beginning. So here's the statement about the Holy Spirit. He says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who's the Helper? The Spirit of truth, He proceeds from the Father and He will bear witness about Me. Why is this such a big deal? It's such a big deal because of what the witness of Jesus Christ has brought about up to this moment. Up to this moment, what Christ bearing witness about Himself, what the Father bearing witness about Him through the miracles that He did, what that witness has brought about is hatred and murderous intent. Not only for Christ, but also for those who would follow after Him and are going to be commanded to bear witness in the future. Look just up the page. In verse 22, He says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates Me hates My Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both Me and My Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated Me without cause. All of the witness that Jesus has borne about Himself, all of the witness that the Father has borne on His behalf, has brought about nothing but hatred and murderous intent upon the people around Christ and around the apostles. And they know it's not going to stop. I mean, if you look at just, just before this in the, Nazareth, the Lazarus narrative, when, when the apostles find out that Jesus is intending to go back to Bethany and raise Lazarus from the dead, 
they they look at him with oh, no small amount of incredulity and say, Lord, we just left there because they were trying to kill us. And now we're going back. And then Jesus says this, When the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with Me from the beginning. Now, if you understand the position they're in, if you understand the position they're in, if you understand why Jesus is comforting them by telling them about the coming of the Comforter, if you understand how Jesus is helping them about telling them about the coming of the Helper, if you understand how Jesus is advocating for them by telling them about the coming of the Advocator, well, it's because of this. And when you see this term in its legal context, you understand that when He's called the Helper, it's not just because, hey Lord, I need a little help. It's the equivalent of a man standing on the wrong side of the bars of the jail cell looking at his advocate, at his attorney on the other side when he's going to have to go stand before the judge and go and help me. He's that kind of helper. He, he's not the little helper that comes along and, and just helps get you over the hump so you can get the job done. No, he is the one when you are in desperate need that is there with the answer that you otherwise would not have. And the role of the advocate is to plead the case, the purpose and the cause of the one who is being advocated for. He is there to intercede. And you always see this concept of intercession being spoken of when you talk about the advocacy of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And the word is very simple in the Greek. It literally means to get between. Intercede. It means to step between you and something else, which is a particularly weighty deal when the way that we often hear of intercession spoken of in the church today is intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer. Hey, I'm all for intercessory prayer. Don't get me wrong. I mean, good grief, you'd be, you'd be a heretic if you weren't. I'm all for intercessory prayer. What I'm telling you is this. It's kind of like spiritual warfare. I think it gets thrown around a little flippantly and a little lightly because when you're talking about intercessory prayer and I'm interceding for Dave with something Dave's got going on, what we're talking about is I'm going to try to step between Dave and God, which is a weighty place to be. Christ, Scripture says, is the only intercessor that we have that there is no other. And when we talk about intercessory prayer, because I don't want you to hear me wrong, don't say Pastor Brian's against intercessory prayer. No, I'm all for intercessory prayer. I just want us to understand how weighty it is and understand the only way it works is that when I intercede for Dave or I intercede for Ryan, that we actually, both of us, only have one intercessor. It's the same one. And he is actually doing the interceding and we are petitioning him on the other's behalf. Because Christ is it. Amen. He's the only intercessor we have. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5-6, through 6, it says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. There's one that stands in the middle. There's one God, there's one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Of this one intercessor, Jesus Christ the righteous, our advocate, 
of this one, Scripture says that his intercession is effectual, that when he does it, it works. In the book of Romans in chapter 8, verses 31 through 35, speaking about Christ's advocacy through intercession for us. You understand that the difference between the idea of the advocate and the activity of interceding is very similar to the idea of atonement and the activity of propitiation. Atonement's the grand idea that sins are going to be covered. Propitiation is the means by which those sins are covered. The advocate is the one who is going to plead your case before God. Intercession is the means by which He does it. Christ's intercession, intercession is effectual. In chapter 8, verses 31 through 35, Paul asks the question, what shall we say to these things? Notice when, when, when the, the interceding activity of the advocate is spoken of, it is often under difficult circumstances, whether it be in John chapter 15 or here in Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one that died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Not only did Christ die on your behalf, not only was He raised from the dead, defeating the grave, but He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And indeed, what He is doing there, you would think He'd be doing something way more important than trivial little me. But what Paul says, He indeed is sitting there getting between the Father and us, pleading our behalf. And so Paul says this, because Christ's intercession works. He says, this is what's happening. What's your response, Paul? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. When the Christ who died for your sin was raised by the power of the Father to defeat the grave and ascended to the right hand of God on high, who is indeed, despite all of what we might think, indeed interceding on our behalf, it works. None will separate us from Him. Even in the midst of all of these things, we are more than conquerors because Christ's intercession is effectual. That's the kind of advocate you have. Here's what's crazy. What's crazy is it's not just that indeed He would intercede for us. It's not even indeed that He does intercede for us. Author of Hebrews in chapter 7 in verses 23 through 26. Man, let me tell you something. <clears throat> Jesus Christ loves his glory in the gospel. Man, he must. You know, when we, we look back and you know the, the high theologians, at the end of the day, when you say why? When you ask that question like the proverbial five-year-old, why? And you give the answer, why? 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 Now, at some point in time, we're going to get down to the base code of the universe. Right? Here's why. For all of them. When you ask the question about why, and it's usually couched something along the lines of this, why would God do it this way? 
right? Why do we do it this way? And why go through the suffering? Why go through the pain? Why go through the loss when you're a being who has never suffered any material loss in, in your entire existence? Why willfully go through the loss of your own son? Why do it this way? You are infinite in all of your attributes. It doesn't cost you anything to wipe them out and make new ones. Wipe them out. We know that they offend your justice. It's not going to hurt your feelings. Why didn't you just wad up the piece of paper and start over? And the answer is always the same. Because God saw fit in all of the possible ways of all of His infinite mind to show the true grandeur of the glory of His nature, this was the one that worked. This is the one that said, this is who I am. In all of its difficulty, in all of its trial, in all of its glory, in all of its love, in all of its fear, this is the one that shows Him for what He is. This is the one that takes the unknowable God and makes Him known. And He digs it. And He must. Because the author of Hebrews says this about the intention of Christ in interceding for us. As our advocate, here's Jesus Christ the righteous, the righteous advocating for Brian and Patrick, not the righteous. I mean, you talk about picking up a dirty gig, right? Man, he must love it. Because look what it says about him in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number. Here's your mediator, here's your interceder, here's your advocate arguing for you and me, getting between us and the Father. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. What a mind-blowing statement! Jesus Christ lives to make intercession for His people. And the way that that is phrased in the Greek, it is not primarily speaking of His resurrection. As though He lived in order to put Himself in a position where He could indeed effectually make intercession. No, it is talking about purpose here. He lives to make intercession for them. He loves it. It's His thing. And Jesus Christ loves the glory of God in the Gospel. Because without love for the glory that that produces, there's no reason that the eternal God would live for that. You know, I, I think that if I found my place in a position of omnipotence, that I could probably live for, I don't know, probably several million years just playing with black holes. I bet they're a hoot. Man, he, and that's because I'm fallen and not Him. And His perfection in displaying the glory of the Gospel in Christ, He says, man, I, I can live, live to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ the righteous, sitting next to the righteous Father, says that it is one of His great joys to step in between the all-consuming fire and His people, even though their sin is real, and in their guilt, He would be justified in destroying them. You say, but, but, but He wouldn't be because our sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. What do you think is interceding? That's what's interceding. So I think you have to ask this question. I'm about done tonight. 
I think it's such a great statement. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have a mediator, we have an interceder, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now we said right at the beginning that when you look at this word, it's very particular, it's, it's very poignant. And it's only used five times in all Scripture, and it's all recorded by John. One time it's coming out of John's mouth by the Holy Spirit speaking about Christ, but the other four times it's coming out of Christ's mouth in the Gospel of John speaking about the Holy Spirit. And so if we only have one advocate, one mediator, if there's, if there's only one who lives to make intercession, and that's Christ, then how is it that if Christ is the only mediator between God and man, how is it that the Holy Spirit is also called the helper and the advocate five more times than Christ is? Matter of fact, it says that when the Spirit is interceding with us, He does it in a way that's even too deep for words. He does it in a way that's too deep for human, not only communication, but I would argue for human conception. For us to be able to grasp the concept. Back in Romans chapter 8, where Paul was talking a lot about intercession, we've already been there once tonight. Romans chapter 8, in verse 19, Paul says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What Paul is speaking about here is the tension that exists in a saint between the old creation that is often called the flesh and the new creation that is the work of the Spirit. And so the creation, man, is groaning under the burden of judgment from the fallen nature of this world. And that is true of the, 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 the dirt and the worms and the birds in the air and the bark on the trees. It is groaning under that weight. This is also true for us. Not the new creation that is of the Spirit, but the body that is of the flesh is groaning under the burden and the weight, the results of our own sin and guilt. And so what do you do with this tension? How is it resolved? Paul continues in verse 24 and says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know, for, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God. Your Bible probably says according to the will of God. The words will of do not exist in the Greek. It says he intercedes according to God. Which is a pretty important point. We'll drive home here in just a second. And here's the nature of a new creation in the Spirit that is still dwelling in a fallen body of flesh is there is tension between the two. And there is something 
that God has put eternity in our hearts, there is something about the kingdom, and it is the bulk of the kingdom, that we are longing for that because of our fleshly nature, we don't understand. Take you right back to where we started off tonight with the reality that right now, in some way we don't understand, we have fellowship with the Apostle Paul, and the, well, we do with the Apostle Paul, specifically with the Apostle John, through Jesus Christ. John understands it way better than us. But it's there whether we understand it or not. That tension exists. The Lord has put eternity in the hearts of men, particularly eternity for the kingdom in the hearts of His people. These are the things that we long for but do not have the ability. And it is not a lack of education. It's not a lack of study. We do not have the ability because of the nature of our physical being to understand that as we ought or to pray for it as we ought in the middle of those groanings. So Christ reveled in the glory of the Gospel displayed in Him. It says that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. Here is the very definition of advocacy. The very definition of the helper when you need help. He intercedes on our behalf. He gets between God and us with groanings that are so deep that we cannot even comprehend. When you put those two concepts together, you've got Christ. We're talking about the joy of having an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen. Man, you, you put these two things together. Setting to the right hand of the throne of the judge is the only mediator between God and man that not only is willing, but lives to intercede for me and for you on our behalf. And if that wasn't enough grace, when the new creation is groaning and struggling against the fallen nature of the old creation, Christ is not content to leave that intercession, that help and that comfort in the throne that is so far removed from us, but instead the very Holy Spirit who is in us as the regenerating agent of the Gospel is interceding with groanings too deep for words from here. You have an advocate that is the Holy Spirit advocating and interceding for you here. You have an advocate that is Jesus Christ advocating and interceding for you there at the throne. And you're being interceded for literally on both ends from whence it is coming and from where it is being received. And you say, how can that be? How can that be if Jesus Christ is our only mediator? If He is our only interceder? If that's the case, if He's our only advocate, then why is it that the Holy Spirit gets called the advocate and the interceder more than Christ does? It's because of the nature of the Trinity, guys. There's a, a real, you know, there's a real quotable proof text in the Gospel of John about the oneness of Christ and the Father. I and the Father are one. But the reality of the Trinity, while that one's the easiest to quote off the cuff, the reality of the Trinity that Christ and the Father are one. Christ and the Spirit are one, and the Spirit and the Father are one. And they're all separate and they're all God, and I don't get it, and neither do you, but it's still true. Amen. 
And so here is the statement about the Holy Spirit being the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ out of Romans chapter 8, verses 4 through 11. Let's, uh, let's go back up to 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The Spirit is the regenerative agent. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So the Spirit that is in you, that is life and peace, it is the opposite of the death of the flesh. It is not just any spirit. It is the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of the Father. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, how? Well, not in His physical person. His physical person is sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the day when His enemies will be made a footstool for His feet, and He will split the Mount of Olives from top to bottom. How is He in us? He's in us through the Spirit that is the Spirit of Christ. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If then... If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, being the Father, dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now the question is this. Are there three spirits dwelling in you? No. There is one. And yet, He is the Spirit. He is the Spirit of God. He is the Spirit of Christ. For I and the Father are one has massive implications. Massive implications. He is our only mediator. He is our only intercessor. He is our only advocate. And He is literally working the war from both ends. One at the throne and one from ground zero. So, John says, little children, I write this to you so that you may not sin. But if you do, be encouraged and have joy, not in your sin, but in that you have an advocate before the Father. And it is none less than Jesus Christ, the righteous Himself. Patrick, you want to pray for us, man?